morning and happy Sabbath. It's really lovely to be with you all today. Uh, as a um, member of a sister congregation in Burr Ridge, um, but also I realized today, I was reminded that I actually have a long history with Downers Grove. And that is that my grandfather, Thomas Fisher, helped to build this very building in 1967. Um, my mother, who's here visiting today, was baptized here as a young woman. And then um, as we were coming in, my parents reminded me that um, I attended preschool here. I had forgotten those early formative years in Downers Grove. So um, it's very good to be here and to be worshiping with all of you today. If you would, uh, join me in prayer as we begin. Gracious God, I thank you for the power of your word, that it is alive and active, and that it accomplishes a purpose in our lives for that which you send it forth. I pray that now you will take my words and transform them into the words that we need to hear, words that can change our lives and our hearts um, and to draw us into your image. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'm wondering this morning, have any of you done something repeatedly for 38 years? Oh, I see a hand. I'm wondering. I, I don't know. This might be the case of Benjamin Button. You don't look like you're 38 years old. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But yes. I, now, when I was thinking about this, I thought about marriage. I, w I was wondering, has anybody been here uh, and been married for 38 years? Okay, all right, 38 years. Very, very close. Uh, what about work? Has anyone um, been in their particular chosen career or, or work field for 38 years? Okay, so maybe, maybe getting close or maybe uh, changed careers. But when I was thinking about it, I realized um, we don't do many things for 38 years. And specifically, we don't do many things that require a very intense focus or training or discipline for 38 years. For instance, the author Malcolm Gladwell uh, made popular a research study that showed that to become an expert in something, to gain mastery, to become a professional in something, whether that be mastering cooking French cuisine or becoming a professional musician or becoming a professional athlete, that one must put in about 10,000 hours into their chosen field, their sport or their craft. Now, 10,000 hours averages out to about 10 years of intense training and work. Now, that sounds about right to me when you think about some of the professional athletes we might watch or when we watch Olympics and we see men and women who are, are still quite young, but they've been practicing already for 10 years, 12 years, 14 years, and they have become experts and masters of their craft. But even them, even the Serena Williams of tennis and the Michael Phelps of swimming and the Carly Lloyds of soccer and even Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls, 
they didn't train for 38 years, nor did they have a 38-year-long career. So when I read in scripture about a man who had been paralyzed or crippled for 38 years and had found himself by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, this signals that, that clearly something was going on in this man's life that was very, very important. He had spent 38 years searching for healing. That was his deepest desire, his truest dream, if he could only be made whole, if he could only regain the use of his physical body and have the strength and vitality that he once had. 38 years. And he had arranged his life in such a way that he was by the pool of Bethesda. Now let me tell you a little bit about this pool. As the scripture says, um, it had five um, sort of awnings or porches. And archaeologists and researchers have found that the pool itself may have even been as deep as 40 feet deep. But I want you to picture around this pool, these are not people lounging and vacationing poolside. I want you to picture instead a hectic emergency department. When you go and visit and you're waiting to be cared for and you can hear screaming of an infant next door, you can hear down the hallway someone sobbing because they've been given life-altering news. You can see the staff running and scurrying back and forth. And you get, the play, you get the idea very quickly that this is a very hectic place. This is a place full of a lot of need and a lot of desperation. And that's a little bit closer to the pool of Bethesda. Or imagine visiting your loved one in a nursing home and you notice that the nursing home is constantly overcrowded with residents and chronically understaffed. That's a little bit like what the pool at Bethesda would have been like. So why does he go there? Why does this man, who we don't even know his name, why does he go there for 38 years? Now maybe he went there for long stretches of time and, and stayed there. Maybe he was um, able to kind of go back and forth from, from his home or somewhere else where he maybe would beg and then find a way to get himself back to the pool. We're not really sure, but the point is he was constantly at this pool. He was continually returning to the pool of Bethesda. Why? Again, scripture tells us, as, as um, Rob read for us, that there was this legend that when the waters would be stirred, that whoever could get in the pool first, after that water was stirred or was rippled, that they would be healed. So can you imagine, again, a picture of that crowded emergency department or that crowded nursing home. You can imagine all of these desperate people longing for healing, and they're all lying around the edges of the pool or as close to the pool as they can get so that they could be the first one into the water to receive that healing. Can you imagine watching day after day, hour by hour, minute by minute? Was that, oh, no, that's not a ripple. Oh, was that, nope and then someone else beats you into the pool. And they come up saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I've been healed. And you see them walk off and leave the pool. Who knows? 
But obviously this man believed that there was healing to be found at the pool of Bethesda. And so he had arranged his whole life in pursuit of that healing. In other words, simply put, he was more committed to his hope of healing than even athletes are to being the best at their game, or even Olympic athletes who dream of winning a gold medal. This man was even more committed because for 38 years, he desired to be whole. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't call that just discipline or drive or willpower. There is a very specific word that comes to mind, and that word is faith. I see that the man in John chapter 5 had faith. Because faith at its very core is the belief that something can change, something can be different. Faith says things could be different tomorrow. Faith says I could change. I could really stick to that diet. I could really save enough money to buy a house. I could really get that new job if I wanted to. I believe that things could be different. I believe that there's more going on than what meets the eye. That's faith. And as Christians, we don't just have faith, but we have something very specific. We have faith in our God. Faith that says things could change and have changed because God has the power to redeem. Amen? Things could be different because our God is in the business of drawing people to himself and transforming them and renewing them and recreating them, right? There is more than meets the eye when I look at you and when we look at this world together because according to scripture in Colossians 1, Christ is what holds all things together. And the Christ that we know of Revelation says, behold, I am making all things new. So that is faith. That is what we profess as Christians, that we have faith in God, faith that things can change. And so the man in John 5 has a lot of faith. He shows up every day to the pool, acting as though today could be the day. Today could be different than the 13,870 days that had preceded it. That is faith. Now here's where things get interesting. Jesus enters the scene. We're told in John chapter one that Jesus returns to Jerusalem, that he's there for a feast, and he makes his way to the pool of Bethesda. Now if I were a person in that, by that pool, I might be a little bit curious because already in John's gospel, some very unusual things have been happening around Jesus and water. In John chapter 2, Jesus attends a wedding and turns water into wine. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus goes to meet with Jesus by night, and Jesus tells him, if you want to be born again, you must be born again by the water and by the Spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman by a well, and he says to her, if you knew who I was, You wouldn't ask me for water. You would ask me for living water, and you would never thirst again. So I don't know about you, but if I had heard that Jesus was coming to the pool of Bethesda, knowing these things that have already happened and knowing what Jesus could potentially do with water, I think I would be 
intrigued. I think I would be pretty excited to have him come by because great things happen when Jesus is near water. And Jesus comes to the pool and sees the man. And that's the thing about our God is that he already knew this man's history. He knew his name. He knew how long he'd been there. He knew how he'd arranged his life in hopes of healing. And Jesus asks him a question with the most compassion and gentleness possible. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made whole? Some of the translations say. But I pause for a moment. Why is Jesus asking this? This man has been here every day for 38 years. He's been spending all of his days and his time and his energy getting to the pool and watching for the rippling of the water and trying to get in those waters for healing. So why is Jesus asking him, do you want to be healed? I almost feel like it's one of those obvious questions that has an obvious answer. For instance, if you say to your two-year-old, do you want a time out? Are you honestly expecting them to say to you, yes, it would be good for me to take a few moments to recompose myself and return to a rational state of mind. Thank you so much. Yes, I'll take the time out. No. If you say that to your two-year-old, do you want a time out? The answer is no, right? Or it's like, um, should you get pulled over for speeding here in Chicago? God forbid that that happened, but should you? And you get pulled over and the officer comes up to your car and kind of growls in the window and says, do you want a ticket? What's the answer? You're gonna say, yes, officer. Actually, I would like three tickets. I'm a little behind in my donations to our community. And so, yes, please, I need three tickets. No, the answer is no, I'm so sorry, sir. Yes, I was speeding, but no, I don't want a ticket, right? So when Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? I have to, I have to wonder, what is he getting at? What is he asking? Clearly, the answer is yes. But then I read in scripture, read with me, verse 7 in the New Living Translation, would you like to get well? I can't, sir. What? I can't? Because I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me when I read this. Because here is a man who has been showing up at the pool for 38 years on the verge of healing, right? That's his deepest desire. That's his, his discipline to go to the pool and, and be prepared for healing. I mean, that's, that's what he's arranged his life around, is this pool. And then he says, I can't, sir. Would you like to be healed? I, I can't. I don't have anyone to help me. Now, when I read this, you could take it a couple of ways. You could look at it and think that the man is making an excuse. Or perhaps the man has had a moment of despair and he despairs and thinks that nothing will ever be any different. But when I read it, I see a different ideology at work. I shared with you just a moment ago that faith is the belief 
that things can be different, that things can change, right? And as Christians, we believe that, that God can change us, that God can change the world around us. But what this man is describing when he says, I can't, sir, is fatalism. Fatalism, specifically meaning that your life is controlled by fate. That in other words, everything that happens to you is inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it. It's already predetermined. You better not try to resist. You better just accept what is. And we see that present. I know it may sound a little bit abstract, but don't you ever find yourself saying those words about maybe a coworker? Yeah, you'll have to excuse him. I don't, I don't think things will ever really be any different. I mean, that's just that's the way he is, right? Or you look at a work situation that you so desperately want to be different, and you say, there's, there's nothing more I can do here. It's just it's the way it is. Or you look at the world and you think, something's got to be done, something's got to be changed, there's got to be something, right? There's got to be some hope. And someone says to you, you know, you've just, you need to be realistic. This is the way the world is. There's nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. That's fatalism at work, not faith. That's fatalism because faith says, I believe things can change. I believe that God can change me. I believe that God can change the things that I see. Fatalism says everything is just inevitable. There's nothing that can be done. And so this man is caught in a contradiction. His whole life, his whole body is there poised at the edge of the pool saying, yes, I want to be healed. And with his mouth, he's speaking the words of fatalism saying, I, I can't. It's impossible. No, I, I can't be healed. And then Jesus does a miraculous thing, as only Jesus could do. He does not argue. He does not point out the man's contradiction. He does not give him a lecture. He simply says to him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the scripture says, instantly the man was healed. He began rolling up his sleeping mat, and he began to walk. That's what the scripture says, that Jesus did not argue with him, did not review this with him, but spoke directly to the man's faith and said, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Now that is a great story of faith. But there's a little bit more that I want to appeal to us today. It may be easy to read this and be inspired and, and think to ourselves, oh, I, I want to be a person of faith. But there's even perhaps a little bit something more that Jesus asks of us. I'd like you to consider what it means for us collectively to be Christians, people of faith, and specifically to worship and to be a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. When I look at our long history as Adventists, I see that we are collectively a people of faith that barely 40 years on from our formation as a, uh, and, and our official name and recognition as a Seventh-day Adventist denomination, we built Hinsdale Hospital. And we built university after university and hospital after hospital and clinic 
and schools and churches in just a short matter of time because people had faith. They believed that things could change. They believed that people could live full and abundant lives, that we could experience life with God now. And I want to ask us to hold on to that because I think we do. I think we do. But I think every once in a while there is a temptation to speak words of fatalism. To look at the enormous pain and suffering in our communities or just a few more miles out into the city of Chicago and to say, there's nothing that can be done. There's no way that gang violence will ever be solved. There's no way that the murder rate in Chicago could ever be changed. It's just, it's the way it is and it's gonna be that way until Jesus comes, you know? Or yeah, we'd really like to see this new ministry take off and I just, I just don't know, I don't think it's gonna happen, right? Or, or we look at it and we, we think about our institutions and we say, oh, I, I remember the good times passed, but I don't know, I don't, I don't know that we're really doing what we're called to do today. I don't know that there's anything we can do until Jesus comes and makes things right. And there is truth to that, right? We, we look for the ultimate completion of things, the things when God will make all things new in Christ's return and Christ's reign on this earth. We, we know that. But I believe that it's faith that keeps on saying God is alive and active and at work in our lives now and in our communities now and through our hospitals and through our schools and through our churches now, today. And so we are being called, I believe, collectively as a people of faith to say, God, I believe that you're up to something. I believe that you're working in ways that I may not even fully see or understand, but you are working. And I want to join you in faith through that. And so here come the words of the Lord to us. Stand up. Pick up your mat and walk. And as we live into that faith, as we live into our calling as the people of God and people of faith, I believe that we will find the strength that we need, the resources that we need, the vision that we need as we move with God into the great adventure of our lives. And so my prayer this morning is that God will help us to live out of faith, not fear, not fatalism, but faith, and that we will be God's faithful people. Amen.